Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. How can we do a season on the Cold War without talking about Bond, James Bond? He was there from the beginning, at least in print, and has, of course, survived into the post-Cold War era. So many films, so many Bonds. We've talked about nuclear warfare, espionage and intrigue, evil deep state corporations, and corrupt national security institutions, and human stories of love and loss behind the Iron Curtain. Bond's been through it all. James Bond is, of course, the child of Ian Fleming, a writer with essentially the same sort of background as Bond's. He came from a wealthy family. His father was a freewheeling industrialist who died a heroic death on the Western Front in 1917. Ian was born for empire, to quote Connie Sachs from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, educated at Eton and at Sandhurst, the British Military Academy. He spent time as a student in Munich and Geneva before serving in the Naval Intelligence Division during World War II. His 30th assault force was a so-called T-force, technical force, that worked behind enemy lines to find German scientists and wonder weapons. So you can see where Bond is an extension of Fleming himself. Right. And so when he comes back from that excitement, he does a lot of freelance journalism before writing the first Bond novel, Casino Royale, in 1952. Fleming wrote 11 novels and several short stories before dying at the young age of 56 in 1964. Unfortunately, like the real Bond, he was a heavy drinker and smoker. But unlike Bond, it caught up with him. Obviously, the Bond franchise really survived him, and several authors picked up where he left off. But Bond, the international megastar and commodity, only took off when he walked onto the silver screen. That's where we come in. But where do we start? Well, there are 27 Bond films. But what we wanted to do was to focus on the Cold War and then discuss a film where Bond is operating outside of the bipolar world entirely to see how he changed. So we decided on three films that also, as it happens, give us three different Bonds. We have From Russia With Love from 1963 the second Bond film that starred Sean Connery. From the Roger Moore era, we're looking at For Your Eyes Only from 1981. Then between 89 and 95, after the Cold War ended, there was kind of a dead zone where it seems Bond was figuring out where he stood in the world. But we pick up with the first post-Cold War Bond film, GoldenEye from 1995, and starring Pierce Brosnan. There's a lot more continuity than change, despite the leading men in the Bond universe. That is until the Daniel Craig era. What's the difference there? 9-11. And in fact, that's a topic that Brian is writing about right now. 
Yes, I do hope to have a Bond chapter. I happen, I'll have a couple Lucare chapters, which is probably why some people notice I speak about them way too much in this series. So I do hope to kind of shed a light on how the, the whole genre changes after 9-11. Bond's a good case study. But what are our lives agreed upon when it comes to James Bond in this episode? So many directions to go here. Trust us. I've discovered doing this research, there is an entire cottage industry of academics dissecting every aspect of Bond, his colonialism, his misogyny, his fragility, his late stage capitalism. My favorite essay was entitled simply James Bond's Penis. It was a history of his dick, and that's not inconsequential. We probably won't go there, however. Uh, Our first lie is that James Bond is the quintessential cold warrior a veritable superhero battling the evil empire. But if you really pay attention, that's not the case. Bond rises above the Cold War, even in the early years, to take on a variety of independent actors. And when the Soviets enter into the plots, they are not the real villains. They're part of the landscape, and the rivalry is real, but they aren't evil. There are rules in the Cold War, and both sides follow them. More often than not, The villains are rogue agents, and they're not all Soviets gone bad. Yes, that's right. And as even I know, John le Carré, and it might not surprise our audience, loathed James Bond and Ian Fleming especially. Uh, As a relative newcomer, le Carré had to shout from the rooftops that his novels don't belong in the same discussion as Fleming. In a 1965 interview, Uh, Le Carré accurately complained that Fleming, during the heat of the Cold War, failed to offer any serious comment about the Cold War. And we both certainly agree with that. Our second lie concerns the place of Bond's beloved England. Ian Fleming created Bond in the early 50s, in part to perpetuate a comforting lie that Britain was still a great mover of world events. Bond, the Etonian, this avatar for a heroic England from a bygone era, is setting the world right. He's a throwback to the first spy novels written at the turn of the 20th century, all by British authors. Bond helps his vast reading and viewing public forget that Britain is very much on the sidelines of a bipolar world. When Americans do show up in Bond's universe is to facilitate his missions with money, you know, what else is the U.S. good for? and stuff. Um, remember in Casino Royale, the most recent one, you know, Bond goes bust at the card table and Felix Leiter, played by, by the great Jeffrey Wright, is like, hey, here's $10 million. I just happened to find it on the floor, basically. That's what Americans do, help the British. Right. And our third lie takes us deeper into the Bond universe and allows us to speak about other films beyond these three. That's that Bond changes with the times. The writers and directors are in tune with geopolitics, and Bond reflects that. That's the lie, because, I mean, we really kind of disagree. Yes, Daniel Craig is more vulnerable. His body, especially his penis, takes abuse no other Bond has, and he is a more human character than other Bonds. But in the end, he's also about restoring British national power, restoring the patriarchy that is integral to Bond from day one, and eliminating enemies that exhibit any form of difference. Bond villains are ethnically ambiguous, sometimes sexually ambiguous, or they're just those who don't belong at Eton. 
And this doesn't go away with the Cold War or even after 9-11. In fact, maybe one of the reasons Bond remains so popular is because, really, he doesn't change with the times. We can take comfort in him perpetuating the first two lies, that the Cold War was just a stage to play on, and that Britain still matters on that world stage. Okay, recap time. It's probably been a while since many of you have seen these particular Bond films. If you're younger than us, you may never even have heard of them. So many of the plots run together, and there are loose connections linking one to the other, such as with our first film, From Russia with Love. The first Bond film was Dr. No, 1962, and marked the beginning of Sean Connery's era, as well as the introduction of his chief nemesis outside the Soviet Union, Spectre. This international cabal of criminals and opportunists feed on Cold War insecurity and are a threat to both the West and the Soviets. They literally put it in the name, Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Lovely. And they have cool octopus rings to let everyone know that they're evil. Bond prevents Spectre from sabotaging a U.S. space launch in Dr. No, but... As a result, he's on their shit list. And in From Russia with Love, they want revenge. Terence Young directed both films, and Richard Malbaum adapted Fleming's novels to the screenplays. Aside from Connery, the film stars Robert Shaw as the Irish, and that's not an accident, Spectre assassin, Red Grant. Lotta Lenya is the fabulous Rosa Klebb, a Spectre agent inside the KGB. Bernard Lee is M. The Mexican actor Pedro Armendariz plays the Turkish MI6 station chief in Istanbul. And the obligatory Bond girl is Daniela Bianchi, an Italian actress who plays Tatiana Romanova, a Soviet cipher clerk. Yeah, I do love how you have to have the, the Mexican actor can play the Turkish guy because all you really need is a brown skin, you know, in the 1960s. Everyone can play everybody. So the casting decisions will get a little better over time. Uh, the plot picks up with Spectre planning to lure Bond by using the KGB's special cryptology machine as bait. It looks just like an Enigma machine from World War II. Knowing MI6 will send their best agent to get it, Rosa Klebb is tasked with making sure Bond travels to Istanbul to steal the machine. Klebb uses the beautiful Tatiana to seduce Bond, who thinks her orders come from the KGB, but Klebb is actually a mole inside the KGB working only for Spectre. The leader du jour of Spectre in this early iteration is Hans Blofeld, who we never see, just as Pretty White Cat. Here he is laying out the plan to his henchman and henchwoman. Notice Blofeld's metaphor of the fighting fish in reference to Britain and Russia. Siamese fighting fish, fascinating creatures, brave but of the whole stupid. Yes, they're stupid. Except for the occasional one such as we have here who lets the other two fight. But he waits, waits until the survivor is so exhausted that he cannot defend himself. And then, like Spectre, he strikes. I find the parallel amusing. Our organization did not arrange for you to come over from the Russians just for amusement, number three. Come in, Kronstein. 
Sit down, number three, while we listen to what number five has devised for us. I hope Cranston's efforts as director of planning will continue to be as successful as his chess. They will be. According to your instructions, I've planned for Spectre to steal from the Russians their new lecto-decoding machine. For this, we need the services of a female member of the Russian cryptograph section in Turkey and uh, the help of the British Secret Service. Naturally, neither the Russians nor the British will be aware that they are now working for us. But what makes you think that M, the head of British intelligence, will oblige you by falling in with your plan? For the simple reason that this is so obviously a trap. My reading of the British mentality is that they always treat a trap as a challenge. Yeah, and I do like the guy's very on-point observation that the arrogant British will willingly walk into a trap just for the challenge of it. He just beat a British chess champion right before this scene doing exactly that. And of course, that is the whole, you know, uh, public school or, you know, prep school ethos of the British Empire and, you know, all of that. And so he's he's playing on that tendency uh, right there. The Bond film formula begins to take shape in these early films as we are treated to the obligatory exciting location shots, in this case Istanbul, a trip on the Orient Express to Venice, and some pretty offensive stereotypes of quote-unquote local flavor. In this one, we've got a crazy gypsy camp scene where two sisters are fighting for the right to marry Bond or just to go to bed. I'm not quite sure what's <laughs> yeah, going on sure. here, but their father laughs approvingly and thinks that this is all perfectly fine. But the, the plot is pretty simple and it features Bond besting Robert Shaw, Red, the Red, the Irish agent named Red, uh, aboard the Orient Express, dodging some other assassins and finally getting hold of the cryptologic device with the help of Tatiana. Uh, and just as Kleb is about to shoot Bond, you know, this trap that's been laid for him, Tatiana realized that she's been duped and she helps Bond kill her. Spectre is outraged and like any bad guy in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, he shakes his fist at Bond as if to say, I'll get you next time, Bond. Before we leave the Sean Connery era to move into the Roger Moore time, I'd like to just point out, knowing who Ian Fleming was and who he imagined his bond to be having this working class Scotsman playing bond in those first bunch of films must have driven him crazy because <laughs> <laughs> that is not who he would have imagined as his avatar of, of James Bond. But anyway, so we're going to jump into the middle of the Roger Moore era with for your eyes only only for you, Sheena Easton, right? <laughs> One of the best song, Bond songs, I think. Um, from, so this is from 1981. And uh, Roger Moore is a much less physically imposing Bond, but he makes up for it with increased gadgetry in this era. The movie is directed by John Glenn, not the astronaut, who did all the Bonds in the 70s and early 80s. And Roger Malbaum, once again, wrote the screenplay. It co-stars French actress Carole Bouquet as a Greek heiress seeking revenge for her family's murder. Topol, who I didn't even recognize at first <laughs> because to me, he's just Tevia from 
Fiddler on the Roof, uh, as really great here as a Greek smuggler and intelligence peddler. He's it's he's almost in a different movie from everybody else because he's so <laughs> much better than everybody else is in this. It's very true. Um, anyway. So he's this Greek smuggler and intelligence peddler. Julian Glover is the main bad guy, Aristotle Christatos. And of course, we want to keep in mind that this is still in the era of Aristotle Onassis. And so, you know, that use of uh, Aristotle, we don't know if that's uh, an attempt to kind of play off that. And Walter Gotell plays a frequent character in the Roger Moore Bond films, the KGB general Anatoly Gojol. He's like the Soviet M. Yeah, it is. A, it is good casting again with you know different ethnicities, <laughs> ethnic heritage. Be damned. Just just have some actors in there that are. And Topol is great. Uh, the film begins rather dramatically as a secret Royal Navy trawler is accidentally sunk by an old World War II mine. The problem here is that it had the ATAC system on board. This stands for Automatic Targeting Attack Computer, and it controls all of Britain's Polaris submarines which I wonder how much, I think they only had like three, and, but still pretend that they had many more. Uh, the race is on as Bond and the KGB rush to Greece and try to retrieve ATAC first, but the KGB has hired a bunch of freelancers to do their dirty work on the ground. Bouquet's uh, poor father was asked to help the British and is killed by a Cuban assassin. And she's on the warpath and teams up with Bond to chase the conspirators across the globe. One of the key plot points here is that the British don't realize that Christados is playing them for fools. They think he's their operative, but really he's double dealing. Let's play a clip here with Chaim Topol as Columbo, the smuggler who deals in everything from pistachios to information. Oh, although not heroin. He's got a limit. Uh, he lets Bond know how their arrogance has made the British blind to how they're being manipulated. It is Christados you want, not me. He told you about himself. He's the one with the powerful connections. Lock works for him, not for me. I smuggle, yes, I smuggle gold, diamond, cigarettes, pistachio nuts, but no heroin. Sit down. That I leave to him when he is not too busy working for Russia against my country and yours. My country awarded him the King's Medal. Yes, I know. But other people died for it. All through the fighting in Crete, he was a double agent. King's Medal. What does Christodos gain by setting you up? I know too much about him. He wants me out of the way. By using a British agent to do his dirty work for him, your government might give him another medal. So the message here is that the British still think that the world is in all of their power and seeking their approval. Topol has to tell Bond that his own agency doesn't know what they're doing and really hasn't known for decades when it comes to Christados. It's a little bit off message for the Bond movies up to this point. But maybe now, by the early 1980s, a bit of the reality about British power and influence is finally sneaking into the plots. But we still get to follow Bond to exotic locales. Yes, and once again, we have some lovely scenery all over Greece, 
Corfu, Cortina, and then there's an extended sequence in the Italian Alps with winter athletes preparing for the Olympics. And it's important to to know this era, right? Because the 1980 Olympics are the Moscow Olympics that the U.S. boycotted because of their invasion of Afghanistan. And the um, Winter Olympics, because this is back when the Winter and Summer Olympics were taking place in the same year. This is the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid of the sort of miracle on ice with the Americans winning. And, you know, the viewer is supposed to look at all of these Winter Olympic event kind of things happening and to be thinking about all of that stuff as as part of what's going on here. So Bond is attacked on a ski slope in an ice rink, I think on a ski lift, you know, a triathlon of death. Um, a teenage American ice skater played by Lynn Holly Johnson tries to seduce Bond. Remember, it's the middle-aged uh, Roger Moore. And thankfully, he resists because the whole thing is really kind of creepy. Uh, and then things look bad for Bond when General Gojol shows up to take ATAC from the corrupt Carstitos. But at the last minute, Bond throws it over a cliff. Gojol can only smile. The Cold War is a game after all, and they will see each other again. Oh, and there's a funny scene at, at the very end with Margaret Thatcher, I guess who'd only been in office a very short time by now, and Dennis Thatcher thanking Bond in a phone call for saving the day. But he's off sleeping with, uh, you know, Bouquet while the Thatchers are actually talking to a parrot. So that, that's the respect in, we, we have for the new prime minister in this, uh, this 1981 Bond film. And now we jump forward yet again to our last Bond film, which is 1995's GoldenEye. And this is the first set in the post-Cold War era, and the first one starring Pierce Brosnan, who famously played uh, Remington Steele on television. Uh, and uh, everybody kept thinking of him as being appropriate for the next Bond, uh, but he couldn't get out of his TV contract. But eventually uh, did. My favorite review of the film said Brosnan looked like James Bond's <laughs> valet. I'm not even quite sure what that means, but it's really- it's A little mean. too handsome, a little too, anyway, you know. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe that's what it's about. It's directed by Martin Campbell, who also actually directed Daniel Craig's first Bond film, which is really interesting because the like just in every way, there just seemed to be from completely different planets, let alone from the same director. But anyway, um, we have another first. We now have a woman M played by the glorious Judy Dench, and she'll remain in that role until 2012. Sean Bean plays a corrupt 006. Gottfried John plays the primary villain, the Russian general Arkady Uramov. And Famke Janssen, who people will recognize from uh, being in the X-Men films, Rounders, Nip Tuck, must have been quite young at this point, really. Um, she uh, continues the, by this point, proud tradition of playing a villainous woman with a sexually suggestive name, Xenia on a top, and the virtuous Bond girl, a Russian computer programmer named Natalia is played by Swedish actress Isabella Skorupko. 
Also, you will note a brief Alan Cumming sighting as a treacherous computer expert working for Urimov. And Minnie Driver is in there for a moment. And of course, those two then later start in a movie together. Oh, and we should say that one great constant in all three Bonds that we are discussing is Desmond Llewellyn, who plays Q throughout this entire, all of these decades. Yes, he's only absent in the last few Bond films ever, well, to date anyway. Great character actor and certainly ties them all together. Uh, GoldenEye begins in 1986, during the, with the Cold War still happening, near the end, however, with 006 and 007 infiltrating a chemical weapons base in Archangel near the Arctic Circle. Things go south, and 006 is presumably shot by then-Soviet General Oromorov, but Bond escapes after destroying the base and skiing to safety, naturally. We pick up nine years later with many of the former Soviet officials turning criminal and mercenary. Oromarov and his best woman pilot on atop now work for a Spectre-like organization called Janus. Oromarov and Onatop plan to seize a secret legacy Soviet asset, a satellite called GoldenEye. It's basically a space-based weapon that shoots an EMP, frying everything in the target area. Extorting governments, anyone? Yes, and also a reference to Star Wars, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So we have former Soviets as the bad guys and girls, basically taking advantage of the corrupt Russia of the early 1990s to sow chaos for profit and power. Bond is dispatched to St. Petersburg to meet up with a CIA contact, a good old boy named Jack Wade, played by familiar character actor Joe Don Baker. Together, they use another former Soviet agent, now mafioso, to connect with Janice and learn that one of the masterminds behind the sinister GoldenEye plot is none other than 006. And unlike Ned Stark, Sean Bean lives. We learn that 006 seeks revenge, not just for what happened to him, but his whole family. 006, it turns out, is descended from the Lenz Cossacks, who the Allies handed over to the Soviets after World War II for helping the Axis. Is everybody getting all this? Because there's going to be a quiz later. Let's play the dramatic reunion of these two spies. Hello, James. Alec, back from the dead. No longer just an anonymous star on the memorial wall at MI6. What's the matter, James? No glib remark? No pithy comeback? Why? <laughs> Hilarious question, particularly from you. Did you ever ask why? Why we toppled all those dictators, undermined all those regimes, only to come home? Well done, good job, but sorry, old boy. Everything you risked your life and limb for has changed. It was the job we were chosen for. Of course you'd say that. James Bond, a majesty's loyal terrier, defender of the so-called faith. Yes. I trusted you, Alec. Trust? What a quaint idea. How did the MI6 screening miss that your parents were Leon's Cossacks? Once again, your faith is misplaced. They knew. We're both orphans, James. But where your parents had the luxury of dying in a climbing accident, mine survived the British betrayal and Stalin's execution squads. 
my father couldn't let himself or my mother live with the shame of it. In my six figured I was too young to remember. And in one of life's little ironies, the son went to work for the government whose betrayal was the father to kill himself and his wife. Hence, Janus. Two-faced Roman god come to life. It wasn't God who gave me this face. It was you setting the timers for three minutes instead of six. Am I supposed to feel sorry for you? No. You're supposed to die for me. Yeah, there's some some deep, you know, AP European history type type stuff in this plot if you look closely. Uh, and and Abdeblo Six has some good points. The later Bond films freely admit intelligence comes at human costs. And 006 is not the first former MI6 employee to get screwed over and to come back for revenge. Javier Bardem's character in Skyfall is another casualty of M's shenanigans. The familiar cat and mouse game teams up Bond, Natalia, the sole survivor other than Alan Cumming from the first Goldeneye attack, and the blowhard Jack Wade against 006 on a top and General Oromov. It's clear Oromov is working against the new Russian government as much as anything else. Guess what? Bond wins and kills him off one by one in Cuba, of all places, one of the many beautiful locales. Bond and Natalia get rescued by Jack Wade and a platoon of U.S. Marines who inexplicably are able to operate freely in Cuba, as if it was, you know, 1958 or something. But that's how it ends with the two of them walking off into a Cuban sunset and order restored. So let's revisit our lies agreed upon and reflect on how Bond appeals to British and later more American audiences over his many decades. One of the key takeaways from Bond studies, and such a thing does exist, is that once he became a true box office commodity, the filmmakers really turned Bond into a distinctly American product. He appealed to Americans' love of things British in the 1960s, especially the swinging 60s of, you know, Beatlemania. And it's one of the reasons he makes Britain great again. American profits to be had. Yeah, I mean, think about how successful the satire Austin Powers really is, because it it kind of plays into that whole uh, nostalgia as well. Nostalgia as well that this is, you know, all things British are are good, and they all revolve around a you know a, a James Bond like character. Um, and that is our second lie, actually. So why don't we start there? Britain seems very relevant as a geopolitical power in the Bond films, when in fact. Let's face it, it was an afterthought. British power was greatly diminished after World War II. Decolonization, whether initiated willingly or not, reduced Britain to a cash-strapped isle facing permanent recession. Clearly, the torch had been passed to the U.S. during World War II, and it wasn't about to be handed back. I read that the popularity of Ian Fleming's early novels spiked with the aftermath of the disastrous Suez campaign in 1956. That was a sure sign of British decline, if there ever was one. And what happened in 1956, you ask? Well, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, an Arab nationalist and fierce anti-imperialist who had aided decolonization movements across Africa and the Middle East, nationalized the Suez Canal Company. And this infuriated and threatened Israel. 
but it also humiliated Britain and France as well. They had historic and ill-gotten stakes in the company that had been running the canal. These three pissed-off mini-powers conspired to invade Egypt and take control of the canal, which they did. But in the process, they managed to block the canal to all traffic and uh, illegally started the conflict to begin with by goading the Israelis into, into provoking it. It was such a bonehead move on so many levels that the U.S. and the Soviet Union actually together condemned Britain and France and demanded that they withdraw. I mean, this is an extraordinary moment just to, you know, we're used to now thinking of Britain as a secondary power. But this event in 1956 is, in fact, the first time that Britain has to come to terms with its chastened and lessened position in the world. Let's play this news report from November 1st of 1956 to get some perspective. Pay attention to a very angry Dwight Eisenhower. The Suez Canal, storm center of controversy for weeks, now becomes a cause of war in a lightning sequence of diplomatic and military moves. Cracked French units are embarked at Marseille, bound for a joint staging area with Great Britain on Cyprus. Less than an hour's flight from Egyptian ports, where they are prepared for seizure of the canal by force. A naval concentration in the eastern Mediterranean strengthens the military buildup, even as Israel, in a lightning attack, thrusts deep into Egypt to the vicinity of the canal. France and Britain issue a 12-hour ultimatum that all fighting must cease. Within hours of its expiration, Britain's warplanes are winging their way to Egypt, and its bombers attack five key cities, including Cairo. A Security Council veto by Britain and France of a United States motion for a ceasefire, President Eisenhower, after consultation with Secretary of State Dulles, makes a firm declaration of United States policy. The United States was not consulted in any way about any phase of these actions, nor were we informed of them in advance. In the circumstances I have described, there will be no United States involvement in these present hostilities. It is our hope and intent but this matter will be brought before the United Nations General Assembly. There, with no veto operating, the opinion of the world can be brought to bear in our quest for a just end to this tormenting problem. Yeah, Ike sounds like, uh, you know, you would you took his car without permission and or had a party in the house over the weekend. He's very, you know, he's very much the senior senior partner in this relation, this special relationship. Uh, we both know Britain and France screwed up the Middle East for a century prior to this, so why not finish the job? Now, by overplaying his hand, British Prime Minister Anthony Eden looked foolish and weak. He resigned in disgrace, and Britain retreated back into the only role it had left on the global stage, junior partner to the United States. And what does this have to do with James Bond? Well, the 1950s novels depict a different sort of Britain. James Bond is a prime mover of events the best of Britain and its imperial legacy. He doesn't bungle the hit, so to speak, like Eden did. Americans help Bond succeed, not the other way around. And the movies do this too. There's hardly an American in sight. The KGB is so worried about this one MI6 agent and other foreign governments seem consumed by what the British are up to. 
look at from Russia with love. If, if this cabal of international criminals are looking to stir up Cold War tensions and pit one superpower against the other, why is Bond, who represents by this point a second-rate power, the focus of their attention? Did Hans Blofeld miss the previous 20 years of world events? The real MI6 was in shambles during the era of Bond's great popularity, thanks in part to the Cambridge Five tarnishing the reputation of British intelligence and Britain as a competent global power for decades. We've mentioned the Cambridge Five before, university students sympathetic to communism who soon became Soviet agents. Most of them rose through the civil service as elite Brits with the right last names often do. And one, Antony Blunt, actually became the keeper of the Queen's pictures. They passed along every meaningful bit of intelligence the country had for 30 years. The infamous Kim Philby eventually skipped off to Moscow in 1963, which happens to be the same year that From Russia with Love came out. Now, John le Carré jumped at the chance to write about this world, treason and double agents, failing institutions and lost glory. Fleming went the other way. Both sold millions. I think many in our audience probably saw the 2011 version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, another anti-Bond film at a time when Daniel Craig was showing off his abs and single-handedly restoring Britain to its proper place in the world. Tinker Tailor is about the real MI6 in the 70s. I found this nice little you know, making of clip that features interviews with the major actors, Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, John Hurt. Uh, but the second person speaking in this clip is John le Carre himself. He talks about why he uses the circus as a metaphor for the secret intelligence service, MI6. Let's listen. Well, the circus is jargon for the secret intelligence service. It gets its name from Cambridge Circus where it operates out of. When I started trying to make a parallel universe, I thought Cambridge Circus was an amusing spot. In my day in the secret world, SIS inhabited whole suites of, of dusky little rooms. And Control, i.e. the chief of the secret service, lived halfway up a little crooked staircase. Generally speaking, the ethic is the higher you go, the more secret you get. The rules of the, of the floors and whose territory is, belongs to whom is established, then if you're on the wrong floor, maybe you're up to no good. These are very, very bright people, picked from early on, from school days. They're already noticed, it's like the foreign office, same way. You know? Being buttoned up, not giving too much away, doing what you're told, not complaining. But if uh, a close friend of yours was shot down, you just never really mentioned him again. I get a very strong feeling of people giving up their lives, marrying an idea. Yes, it's so dusty and claustrophobic and sad. Really, maybe much like Britain in 1974. No Oriental Express journeys and gypsy fights for these guys. No budget for exploding pens and cars with missiles. They can't even keep the mold out of this place. And they have to beg the Whitehall flunky in charge of them for a few pounds here and there to pay off a source who happens to actually be an invention of the Soviets. And that brings us to our second lie, which concerns the conventional wisdom that James Bond is a product of the Cold War, 
battling the Soviets across the globe. There were even think pieces about the fate of Bond now that the wall had come down. Wither Bond? I mean, the Bond creative teams did struggle for a bit, but they really didn't need to because Bond was never just a cold warrior. Before he died, Ian Fleming pivoted Bond away from jousting with the KGB and other communist villains, and instead, to his credit, dreamed up Spectre. And as we see in all the Spectre movies, they are equal opportunity villains when it comes to the West and Eastern Bloc. Divide and conquer. Not only that, several Bond Studies academics like to point out that Spectre is really, in a way, the original Al-Qaeda, a loose confederation of terrorist groups that come together occasionally for a common cause, but otherwise exist out in the wild. And in fact, that's what made them so formidable. No nation state to hide behind, just dark money and underground hideouts. Ian Fleming managed to create a nemesis that made the Cold War irrelevant, thereby ensuring Bond continued, thereby ensuring Bond's continued box office appeal. And maybe, in some ways, using that creation of Spectre to get past the fact that Britain really wasn't one of those poles in the bipolar world order. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to know that Spectre's introduced in Dr. No, the very first Bond film that comes out in 1962. And by then, the Cold War had at least entered a new era. And in Dr. No, who, per usual in a Bond film, takes time to explain every aspect of his plan, uh, it's, it's worth for our purposes to play that interaction so you get a sense of how Spectre fits into the Bond universe. Notice Bond's first assumption about Dr. No he says, you know, quote, with your disregard for human life, you must be working for the East. It's a pretty interesting interaction and one I think that sets up um, all the Bond films for the next couple decades. Let's listen. Missiles are only the first step to prove our power. Our power? With your disregard for human life, you must be working for the East. East, West, just points of the compass, each as stupid as the other. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion. The four great cornerstones of power, headed by the greatest brains in the world. Correction. Criminal brains. The successful criminal brain is always superior. It has to be. Why become criminal? I'm sure the West would welcome a scientist of your caliber. The Americans are fools. I offered my services, they refused. So did the East. Now they can both pay for their mistake. World domination, same old dream. Our asylums are full of people who think they're Napoleon or God. You persist in trying to provoke me, Mr. Bond. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? I thought you less stupid. Usually when a man gets in my way. But you were different. You cost me time, money, effort. You damaged my organization and my pride. I was curious to see what kind of a man you were. I thought there might even be a place for you with Spectre. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman. And the failed plot that's being referenced involved messing with U.S. ICBM missiles. The plot of From Russia with Love is a Spectre scheme to kill Bond using Soviet technology and real KGB staff as the lure, but their own moles are pulling the strings. We see this play out in several films. 
And for your eyes only, the villains are the intelligence peddlers with no soul, just greedy mercenaries and nihilists. Yes, ATAC systems in Soviet hands is a bad thing, but General Gojol is part of the game, as Omar Little might say in The Wire. The vicious subcontractor Aristotle is out there taking out civilians. The KGB will have to review its HR policies after this one. And Bond sums up this late stage of Cold War detente in his face-off with Gojol. I don't have it. You don't have it. That's detente, comrade, he says. They acknowledge each other's professionalism, and they go their separate ways until the next time. Pierce Brosnan ushered in the post-Cold War James Bond in Goldeneye, and if you remember, all the villains had Russian accents. But Spectre takes a back seat until Daniel Craig's era, the post-9-11 James Bond, where such organizations made more sense. Brosnan is sweeping up the ugly messes left behind by the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. Rogue satellites, rogue nukes, a resurgent North Korea. Those films weren't particularly compelling, and you can get a sense of why. Our third lie gets to this issue. Did Bond really change with the times? Not really. The trappings of MI6 might change. Judy Dench is M, for example. She sizes up Bond for what he has historically been in her first meeting with him. Let's play that scene from Goldeneye. And notice Bond's take on Russia, which is also kind of insulting. Governments change, the lies stay the same. The Prime Minister's talked to Moscow. They're saying it was an accident during a routine training exercise. Governments change, the lies stay the same. What else do we know about the Yana Syndicate? Top flight arms dealers headquartered in St. Petersburg. First outfit to restock the Iraqis during the Gulf War. The headman's unreliably described, no photographs. The woman on the top is her only confirmed contact. We've pulled the files on anyone who might have had access or authority at Seven Eye. Top name on the list's an old friend of yours, I understand. Oromov. They made him a general. He sees himself as the next Iron Man of Russia which is why our political analysts rule him out. He doesn't fit the profile of a traitor. Are these the same analysts who said the GoldenEye couldn't exist? Who said the helicopter posed no immediate threat and wasn't worth following? You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant, a bean counter, more interested in my numbers and your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good, because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, W7. If you think for one moment I don't have the balls to send a man out to die, your instincts are dead wrong. I've no compunction about sending you to your death. But I won't do it on a whim, even with your cavalier attitude towards life. So M sees the intelligence world for what it is, which is why she has the job. But notice how Bond is always proven correct. His instincts are better. Otherwise, why would we watch? Like Elizabeth I, M has to assume a masculine persona in a traditional male role for anyone to take her seriously. As she says, if you don't think I have the balls, there are strings attached to her breaking the glass ceiling of the British government. And we'll get back to that later. So let's evaluate whether Bond is truly tapped into the zeitgeist, or is he a misogynist dinosaur, 
a relic of the Cold War. And the first film after 9-11, Die Another Day, Bond is released after 18 months in a North Korean prison. All he wants is revenge and to disrupt some rogue general trying to start a war on the peninsula. M has lots to consider beyond Bond's rehabilitation to service and his vendettas. And the only nod to 9-11 in the film, she tells Bond, the world's changed while you were gone. His response, well, I haven't. That's true here. And that's why the film is pretty forgettable. It's not at all tapped into the zeitgeist whatsoever. Remember, this is 2002. Yes, I often wonder whether the script of that and the production was kind of like already locked in before they uh, before 9-11 happened. And so they decided that they were just going to kind of use a like, um, <laughs> a, you know, 30 second Patrick scene, Ewing yeah, yeah. Uh, waking up from a dream where <laughs> that's how they were going to deal with it. <laughs> so so if Bond didn't change much after the Cold War. Chasing shadows of the fallen empire for another decade, did he change after 9-11? We say no to that in Die Another Day. But by 2006, it's a new Bond, Daniel Craig. Is he a Bond for the new millennium? Is he a woke Bond? Or is he still all about sports screwing and casual imperial racism? What is our relationship status with Bond? Well, it's complicated. It is. When Daniel Craig came onto the scene in Casino Royale, a 2006 remake of the 1967 satirical film starring David Niven as Bond, critics took notice of this Bond for the post-9-11 environment. Four years passed since Die Another Day, and the war on terror totally reshaped the action thriller spy genre. Jack Bauer and Jason Bourne seemed to have displaced Bond, and Daniel Craig's era had to compete with these new players on the stage. Bauer and Bourne were grittier, darker, haunted by traumatic pasts, and their interactions with women usually ended in tragedy or betrayal. And it's here where we notice, starting with Casino Royale, where Bond, Craig, takes enormous physical abuse. His first killing as 007 is a brawl in a public bathroom. He's shot, stabbed, has his balls bashed in more than once. Remember, James Bond's penis. And he doesn't seem to enjoy the job the same way that his predecessors did. Bond is also teamed up with more substantive women than usual. When he falls for them, though, they either die or betray him and then die. Mrs. Moneypenny now is a badass field agent who also happens to be a woman of color. So there's some nice window dressing, making Bond seem truly relevant for the new post 9-11 millennium. But I think that when you open the curtains wider, you really see more continuity than change. The war on terror does give Bond's historic adversaries new relevance, specifically Spectre. They're essentially terrorist financiers who ignore national boundaries and have taken to cyber terrorism, information warfare, and data theft. Many commentators note the Craig era Bond films endorse intelligence agencies' expansive powers since 9-11, tacitly accepting them as necessary for British, and by default American, homeland security. The most cited example of this is M's testimony before Parliament after a series of MI6 mishaps. She's unapologetic here and also echoes 
her very real counterparts in London and Washington. She's also testifying in this scene at the very moment Raul Silva, the villain played by Javier Bardem, is on his way to kill all of them where they sit. Let's listen to this now kind of iconic testimony. Chairman, ministers, today I've repeatedly heard how irrelevant my department has become. Why do we need agents? The double O section, isn't it all rather quaint? Well, I suppose I see a different world than you do. And the truth is that what I see frightens me. I'm frightened because our enemies are no longer known to us. They do not exist on a map. They're not nations. They're individuals. Look around you. Who do you fear? Can you see a face, a uniform, a flag? No. Our world is not more transparent now. It's more opaque. It's in the shadows. That's where we must do battle. So before you declare us irrelevant, ask yourselves, how safe do you feel? In the shadows is an apt turn of phrase considering it was used by Dick Cheney in his now infamous interview on Meet the Press with Tim Russert just days after 9-11. We now see it as a blueprint for justifying the war on terror, specifically its excesses. So let's listen to Cheney in light of what you just heard from M. would be inappropriate for me to talk about operational matters, um, specific uh, options or... or uh the kinds of activities we might undertake going forward. Uh, we do indeed, though, have, obviously, uh, the world's finest military. They've got uh, a broad range of capabilities, um, and uh, they may well uh, be given missions in connection with this overall task, strategy. We also have to work, though, sort of the, the dark side, if you will. We're going to spend time in the shadows and in the intelligence world. Um, a lot of what needs to be done here will uh, have to be done quietly, without any discussion, using sources and methods uh, that are available to our intelligence agencies uh, if we're going to be successful. Uh, that's the world these folks operate in. And uh, so it's going to be vital for us to, uh, to use any means at our disposal, at a disposal basically, to, uh, to achieve our objective. M totally agrees with that statement, and she defends the double O program, basically assassins, using the same logic. In this sense, Bond is very tapped into the zeitgeist. The war on terror is his time to thrive. It seems fitting to end with Skyfall because the film celebrates nostalgia and the way Bond used to be. Moreover, it puts Britain back on top by restoring Bond as its greatest representative on the world stage. Raul Silva, another former double O betrayed by his own service, joined Spectre to seek revenge, but also, as he sees it, to liberate the globe from imperial nation states. Skyfall ends with the old lady stabbed in a church and replaced by an alpha male M, Ray Fiennes. Money Penny goes from being that badass field agent to sitting outside M's office, just like she used to. Bond vanquishes his gay stalker nemesis, Silva. And the final scene is Bond standing on the rooftop of MI6 headquarters, overlooking a sea of Union Jacks fluttering in the wind across official Britishdom. Lie 2 is back with a vengeance. And I think it's important and, and amusing to note that the set designers in Skyfall gave the new M, the Ray Fiennes M, 
the same desk as the original M from the Sean Connery days. This is about restoring the patriarchy in every way. They're not even concealing it. Kill off mommy, which is you know how Silva referred to M, put money penny behind a desk, celebrate imperial nostalgia and heteronormative values. Bond hasn't really changed right up to his self-sacrificial death last year in No Time to Die. Will the next Bond be a person of color, a woman even? I wouldn't count on it. So here we are, Brian. We seem to have traveled far past the Cold War era dates in our in our exploration of Bond. And here we are at the last episode of a season about the Cold War. But as we've noted from the beginning of the episodes in this season, the legacies of the Cold War continue to haunt us, not just in the form of Russia's invasion of Ukraine or Putin's casual evocation of nuclear conflict between West and East, but also in the global military-industrial complex, now augmented by surveillance states. It's true, but you know, nevertheless, there were unique characteristics of the Cold War that we don't want to lose sight of, and many of them are the result of being the first modern iterations of all sorts of things. The bipolar world order emerged at the same time as mass media came into its maturity. We had so many more ways to engage with what previously might have been the dry political, diplomatic, and military debates and considerations of national elites with few outlets for discussion or reaction among average people. And late-stage capitalism developed in the West and dominated the globe because of, not despite, the supposed communist alternative being offered by the totalitarian regime in Moscow and another one in Beijing. An economic ideology got conflated with a political one. And this is something that's never really been uncoupled since. And this might be one reason why the slide into authoritarianism in the West happening now isn't really seen as something that is truly happening because the Cold War conditioned us to simply see capitalism as a form of democracy. So as long as we're consuming, we must be democratic. Agreed. And and probably most importantly, the Cold War was an era in which the actual and quite probable threat of the total destruction of the planet became simply the white noise of people's lives. Today, with the increasing likelihood that climate change will actually bring about the end of humankind as we know it, not nuclear weapons, perhaps we can see our unwillingness to fully absorb that reality as a legacy of mutually shared destruction. We got very good at whistling past the graveyard during the Cold War. So we hope that you've enjoyed this brief tour through the cinematic world of the Cold War era. We've certainly enjoyed working on it. At the end of our last season, we were certain that the next one was going to be about World War II, and then actual events intervened and changed our minds. So who knows? Maybe that will happen again. But we're recording this on the day that Charles III was officially proclaimed King of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So perhaps that might influence where we go next. One of the ideas for a season we've been tossing around over the last couple of years is biopics. And maybe all those versions of Elizabeth II that we've seen on big screens and small over the past seven decades of her reign deserve an episode or two. But we're not promising anything, except that we'll be back with season four sometime in the new year. 
Otherwise Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon. Thank you.